What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Before I start the show, I feel like there should be a warning. I'm reading public domain books and short stories and whatever else. Uh, Some of it may be offensive. I don't read these things before, so I don't review it, so it's kind of just by chance. So if anything in here is offensive, or most likely with these really old books, uh, bigoted, uh, don't hold me responsible. I'll be just as surprised as you are. And with that, enjoy this episode of Leaves of Glen. I am Glenn Nuzzles. So, it's been a while. I haven't been doing one of these. Why is that, Glenn? You're probably asking. Why'd you take so long to get back into your book? I've got things going on in my life that are none of your business. I'm a busy man. I own a house that has a broken washing machine in it. And I'm preparing for the mouse wars. With all the traps in the basement and everything. So maybe mind your own business. Uh, I have other things. I don't get paid to do this podcast. I don't owe you anything. Except the chapters of this book, which I'm back into. Uh, Last time I recorded two chapters right away off the bat. And uh, uh, they were weird. Uh, Chapter 10, Dorian wants to hide his painting in his old school room, which is kind of creepy to have a homeschooled room that's been closed off for decades. Uh, Oh, also I'm drinking coffee because it's late and um, I gotta stay awake. So you're gonna hear me slurping on coffee every once in a while. Anyways, he's too lazy to get the painting up there by himself. So he hires a frame maker to come and do it. And the frame maker's uh, horny sidekick who just keeps making eyes at Dorian all the time. Uh, and they take it up to the old schoolroom. Uh, I like that there is a woman who works there cleaning the place and whatever, and her name is Mrs. Leaf, and he just keeps calling her Leaf. It's like, whatever, Leaf, give me the key so I can open up the room, which I thought was pretty funny. I kind of hope Leaf comes back as another character that we get to deal with more in this story. Uh, and then Henry gives Dorian a book about hedonism. Um... And then Dorian just goes out. So he's completely not feeling any feelings for this dead fiancé of his. Which probably is probably the best. Um, chapter 11 is really just about him diving into uh, all the things that he thinks are important in life. Just how he's learning. He's expanding as a person and mastering every subject that's handed to him. Uh, 
And the author is just bragging about everything he knows because, my lord, it turned into a laundry list. If he talked about how Dorian learned about textiles, uh, he just went on and on about the different fabrics and their textures and where they come from and the history of the fabrics just forever. It was driving me crazy. I was almost ready to just skip the whole chapter. Uh, This is a good book. It's not bad, but uh, the author's clearly got some... uh, things that I find mildly annoying, and I probably wouldn't read anything else of his in the future. But uh, we're going to keep plowing through. So on to the next chapter. Chapter 12. It was on the 9th of November, the eve of his own 38th birthday, that he often remembered afterwards... He was walking home at about 11 o'clock from Lord Henry's, where he had been dining and was wrapped in heavy furs. As the night was cold and foggy, at the corner of Grosvenor Square and the South Audley Street, a man passed him in the midst. Walking very fast and with the collar of his grey ulster turned up, he had a bag in his hand. Dorian recognized him. It was Basil Hallward. A strange sense of fear, for which he could not account, came over him. He made no sign of recognition and went on quickly in the direction of his own house. But Halward had seen him. Dorian heard him first, stopping on the pavement and then hurrying after him. In a few moments, his hand was on his arm. Dorian, what an extraordinary piece of luck. I have been waiting for you in your library ever since nine o'clock. Finally, I took pity on your tired servant and told him to go to bed as he let me out. I am off to Paris by the midnight train, and I particularly wanted to see you before I left. I thought it was you, or rather, your fur coat, as you passed me. But I wasn't quite sure. Didn't you recognize me? In this fog, my dear Basil, why, I can't even recognize Grosvenor Square. I believe my house is somewhere about here, but I don't feel at all certain about it. I am sorry you are going away, as I have not seen you for ages, but I suppose you'll be back soon? No. I'm going to be out of England for six months. I intend to take a studio in Paris and shut myself up till I've finished a great picture I have in my head. However... It wasn't about myself I wanted to talk. We are at your door. Let let me come in for a moment, and I have something to say to you. I shall be charmed. But won't you miss your train? Said Dorian Gray languidly as he passed up the steps and opened the door with his latch key. The lamplight struggled out through the fog, and Howard looked at his watch. I have heaps of time, he answered. The train doesn't go till 12.15, and it is only just 11. In fact, I was on my way to the club to look for you when I met you. You see, I shan't have any delay about luggage, as I have sent on my heavy things. Uh, All I have with me is, is this bag, and I can easily get to Victoria in 20 minutes. Dorian looked at him and smiled. What a way for a fashionable painter to travel. A Gladstone bag and uh, an ulcer. Ulster. Mm. Come on in, or the fog will get in the house. And mind you, don't talk about anything serious. Nothing is serious nowadays, at least nothing should be. Hallward shook his head. 
as he entered, and followed Dorian into the library. There was a bright wood fire blazing in the large open hearth. The lamps were lit, and an open Dutch silver spirit case stood with some siphons of soda water and a large cut glass tumblers All right, on a little Marguerite table, not looking it up. You see, there's this book is so full of terms that when I do look them up, they're not worthwhile, and I wish I didn't waste the time. So I'm just not doing it. Marguerite table, it's just going to be a fancy table. That's all I'm writing it off as. You see, your servant made me quiet at home, Dorian. He gave me everything I wanted, including your best gold-tipped cigarettes. He is the most hospitable creature. I like him much better than the Frenchman you used to have. What has become of the Frenchman, by the by? Dorian shrugged his shoulders. I believe he married Lady Radley's maid and has established her in Paris as an English dressmaker. Anglomania is very fashionable over there right now, I hear. It seems silly of the French, doesn't it? But do you know, he was not at all a bad servant. I never liked him, but I had nothing to complain about. One often imagines things that are quite absurd. He was really very devoted to me and seemed quite sorry when he went away. Have another brandy and soda? Or would you like a hock and seltzer? I always take hock and seltzer myself. There's sure to be some in the next room. Thanks. I won't have anything more, said the painter, taking his cap and coat off and throwing them on the bag that he had placed in the corner. Now, my dear fellow, I want to speak to you seriously. Don't frown like that. You make it so much more difficult for me. What is it all about? cried Dorian in his petulant way, flinging himself down on the sofa. I hope it is not about myself. I'm tired of myself tonight, and I should like to be somebody else. Is it... "'About yourself,' answered Hallward in his grave, deep voice. "'And I must say it to you. "'I shall only keep you half an hour.' "'Dorian sighed and lit a cigarette. "'Half an hour,' he murmured. "'It is not much to ask of you, Dorian. "'It is entirely for your own sake that I am speaking. "'I think it right that you should know "'that the most dreadful things are being said against you in London.' I don't wish to know anything about them. I love scandals about other people. But scandals about myself eh, don't interest me. They have not got the charm of novelty. Oh, they must interest you, Dorian. Every gentleman is interested in his good name. You don't want people to talk of you as something vile and degraded. Of course, you have your position and your wealth and all that kind of thing. But position and wealth are not everything. Mind you, I don't believe these rumors at all, at least I can't believe them when I see you. Sin is a thing that writes itself across a man's face. It cannot be concealed. People talk sometimes of secret vices. There are no such thing. If a wretched man has a vice, it shows itself in the uh, lines of his mouth, the droop of his eyelids, the molding of his hands even. Somebody, I won't mention his name, but you know him, came to me last year to have his portrait done. I had never seen him before and had never heard anything about him at the time, though I have heard a good deal since he offered an extravagant price. I refused him. 
There was nothing in the shape of his fingers that I hated. I know now that I was quite right in what I fancied about him. His life is dreadful. But you, Dorian, with your pure, bright, innocent face and your marvelous, untroubled youth, I can't believe anything against you. And yet, I see you very seldom. And you never come down to the studio now. And when I'm away from you, I hear all these hideous things that people are whispering about you. I don't know what to say. Why is it, Dorian? What a man like the Duke of Berwick leaves the room of a club when you enter it. Why is it that so many gentlemen in London will neither go to your house or invite you to theirs? You used to be a friend of Lord Staveley. I met him at dinner last week. Your name happened to come up in conversation. In connection with the miniatures you had lent to the exhibition at the Dudley, Stavely curled his lip and said that you might have the most artistic taste, but that you were a man who no pure-minded girl should be allowed to know, and whom no chaste woman should sit in the same room with. I reminded him that I was a friend of yours and asked him what he meant. He told me. He told me right out before everyone. It was horrible. Why is your friendship so fatal to young men? There was that wretched boy in the guards who committed suicide. You were his great friend. There was Sir Henry Ashton, who had to leave England with a tarnished name. You and he were inseparable. What about Adrian Singleton and his dreadful end? About Lord Kent's only son in his career? So clearly he has a whole line of uh, lovers that are all killing themselves that we're just kind of skimming over real quick. There's no story about this. Uh, so it's kind of an onslaught of him loving people and them killing themselves that we're just learning about right now. It's kind of this laundry list. Uh, what about Lord Kent's only son in his career? I met his father yesterday in St. James Street. He seemed broken with shame and sorrow. What about the young Duke of Perth? What sort of life has he got now? What gentleman would associate with him? Stop, Basil. You're... Talking about things which you know nothing, said Dorian Gray, biting his lip and with a note of infinite contempt in his voice. You ask me why Berwick leaves a room when I enter it is because I know everything about his life. Not because he knows anything about mine with such blood as he has in his veins. How could you, his record be clean? You ask me about Henry Ashton and young Perth. Did I teach the one his vices and the other's debauchery? If Kent's silly son takes his wife from the streets, what is that to me? If Adrian Singleton writes his friend's name across a bill, am I his keeper? I know how people chatter in England. The middle classes air their moral prejudices over the gross dinner tables and whisper about what they call the proflagracies of their betters. Should I look that one up? All right, we're looking that one up. Profligacy. 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 Shameless dissoluteness. Reckless extravagance. Great abundance. Profligacy. Now, there you go. We learned something new. Probably could have figured that out just from the context of reading it. Uh, Call the profligacies of their betters in order to try and pretend that they are in smart society and on intimate terms with the people they slander. In this country, it is enough for a man to have distinction and brains, for every common tongue to wag against him. And what sort of lives do these people who pose as being moral lead themselves? My dear fellow, you forget that we are in the native land of the hypocrite. Dorian, cried Hallward, 
That is not the question. England is bad enough, I know. And English society is all wrong. That is the reason why I want you to be fine. You have not been fine. One has a right to judge of a man by the effect he has over his friends. Yours seem to lose all sense of honor, of goodness and purity. You've filled them with a madness for pleasure, and they have gone down into the depths. You led them there. Yes, you led them there. And you can smile as you are smiling now. And there is worse behind. I know you and Harry are inseparable. Surely for that reason, if for none other, you should not have made his sister's name a byword. Take care, Basil. You go too far. I must speak and I must listen. You shall listen. When you met Lady Gwendolyn, not a breath of scandal had ever touched her. Is there a single decent woman in London now who would drive with her to the park? Uh, why, even her children are not allowed to live with her. There are other stories, stories that you have been seen creeping at dawn out of dreadful houses and slinking in disguise into the foulest dens of London. Are they true? Can they be true? When I first heard them, I laughed. I hear them now and they make me shudder. What about your country house and the life that is led there? And Dorian, you don't know what it is said about you. I won't tell you that I don't want to preach to you. I remember Harry saying once that every man who turned himself into an amateur curate for the moment always began by saying that and then proceeded to break his word. I don't want to preach to you. I want you to lead such a life as will make the world respect you. I want you to have a clean name and a fair record. I want you to get rid of the dreadful people you associate with. Don't shrug your shoulders like that. Don't be so indifferent. You have a wonderful influence. Let it be for good, not for evil. They say that you corrupt everyone with whom you become intimate. Eh. Sorry, my Siri just turned on. And that it is quite sufficient for you to enter a house for shame of some kind of to follow after. I don't know whether it is so or not. How should I know? But it is said of you. I am told things that it seems impossible to doubt. Lord Gloucester was one of my greatest friends at Oxford. He showed me a letter that his wife had written to him when she was dying alone in her villa at Mentone. Your name was implicated in the most terrible confession I have ever read. I told him that it was absurd, that I knew you thoroughly, and that you were incapable of anything of the kind. I know you. I wonder... Do I know you? Before I could answer that, I should have seen your soul. To see my soul, muttered Dorian Gray, starting up from the sofa and turning almost white from fear. Yes, answered Howard gravely, and with a deep-toned sorrow in his voice. To see your soul, but only God can do that. A bitter laugh of mockery broke from the lips of the younger man. "'You shall see it yourself. "'Tonight!' he cried, seizing a lamp from the table. "'Come! It is with your own handiwork. "'Why shouldn't you look at it? "'You can tell the world all about it afterwards. "'If you choose, nobody would believe you. "'If they did believe you, they would like me all the better for it. "'I know the age better than you do, "'though you will prate about it so tediously. "'Come, I tell you.' You have chattered enough about corruption. Now you shall look on it face to face. There was a madness of pride in every word he uttered. He stamped his foot upon the ground in his boyish, insolent manner. He felt a terrible joy 
at the thought that someone else was to share his secret, and that the man who had painted the portrait that was the origin of his name, or shame, shall be burdened for the rest of his life with a hideous memory of what he had done. Yes, he continued, coming closer to him and looking steadfastly into his stern eyes. I shall show you, my soul. You shall see the thing that you fancy only God can see. Howard started back. This is blasphemy, Dorian, he cried. You must not say things like that. They are horrible, and you don't mean anything. You think so? He laughed again. Oh, I know so. As for what I said to you tonight, I have said it for your good. You know I have... Uh, always been a staunch friend to you. And don't touch me. Finish what you have to say. A twisted flash of pain cro- uh, shot across the painter's face. He paused for a moment, and the wild feeling of pity came over him. After all, what right had he to pry into the life of Dorian Gray? If he had done a tithe of what was rumored about him, how much he must have suffered. Then he straightened himself up and walked over to the fireplace and stood there, looking at the burning logs with their frost-like ashes and their throbbing cores of flame. I am waiting, Basil, said the young man in a hard, clear voice. He turned around. What have I to say is this, he cried. You must give me some answer to these horrible charges that are made against you. If you tell me that they are absolutely untrue from beginning to end, I shall believe you. Deny them, Dorian deny them. Can't you see that I'm going what I'm going through? My God, don't tell me that you are bad and corrupt and shameful. Dorian Gray smiled. There was a curl of contempt in his lips. Come upstairs, Basil, he said quietly. I keep a diary of my life from day to day and it never leaves the room from which it's written. I shall show it to you if you come with me. I shall come with you, Dorian, if you wish it. I see I have missed my train. It makes no matter. I can go tomorrow. But don't ask me to read anything tonight. All I want is a plain answer to my question. That shall be given to you upstairs. I cannot give it here. You will not have to read long. And that finishes chapter 12. We're going to take a little break. and We're going to dive into chapter 13. Let's uh, learn about a new book from Penguin Random House. Um, this one is coming out October 1st. It's apparently a reissue. It's a spell for chameleon by Piers Anthony. Part of, part of Xanth. It's a category is epic fantasy. You can get it as an ebook if you want. Let's learn about a spell for chameleon. Best novel of the year. British Fantasy Society says, Discover the magical beginning of Piers Anthony's enthralling Xanth series. Xanth was the enchanted land where magic ruled, where every citizen had a special spell only he could cast. <laughs> That's a twist. It was a land of centaurs and dragons and basilisks. For Bink of North Village, however, Xanth was no fairy tale. He alone had no magic, and unless he got some, and got some fast, he'd be exiled. Forever. But the good magician Humphrey was convinced that Bink did indeed have magic. In fact, both Beauregard, the genie, and 
The magic wall chart insisted that Bink had magic. Magic as powerful as any possessed by the king or by a good magician, Humphrey, or even by the evil magician, Trent. Be that as it may, no one could fathom the nature of Bink's very magical, ma- special magic. Bink was in despair. This was even worse than having no magic at all, and he still could be exiled. Thus begins Piers Anthony's enthralling series. Uh, nobody's uh, talking about it. You got no people singing its praises. Probably because Piers Anthony had a penchant for writing about a lot of sex. I remember reading um, On a Pale Horse or Wielding a Red Sword back when I was in uh, junior high. I thought they were good. Kind of weirded out by all the sex that was in them. And uh, I officially decided to never read him again when in the year of 1990 he wrote a book called Firefly that involved pedophile sex. So... Kind of everyone that was into him sort of stopped being into him at that point, and my friends stopped trying to pressure me into reading all these weird books of his. So there you go. If you don't mind probably having to sift through bizarre sex scenes, uh, and you don't mind reading a book from a guy who wrote about underage sex, go get A Spell for a Chameleon. October 1st, uh, Penguin Random House has no problem selling it, so you might as well just read it. Chapter 13 He passed out of the room and began the ascent. Basil Hallward, following close behind, they walked softly as men do instinctively at night. The lamp cast fantastic shadows on the wall and staircase. A rising wind made some of the windows rattle. When they reached the top of the landing, Dorian set the lamp down on the floor and, taking out the key, turned it in the lock. You insist on knowing, Basil? He asked in a low voice. Yes. I am delighted, he answered, smiling, and then he added somewhat harshly, You are the one man in the world who is entitled to know everything about me. You have had more to do with my life than you can think actually be hairy. And taking up the lamp, he opened the door and went in. A cold current of air passed them. Mm, so spooky. And the light shot up for the moment in a flame of murky orange. He shuddered. Shut the door behind you, he whispered as he placed the lamp on the table. Hallward glanced around him with a puzzled expression. The room looked as if it had not been lived in for years. A faded Flemish tapestry, a curtained picture, and an old Italian cazon, and an almost empty bookcase. That was all that it seemed to contain. Besides a chair and a table, as Dorian Gray was lighting a half-burned candle that was standing on the mantel shelf, he saw that the whole place was covered with dust, and that the carpet was in holes. A mouse ran scuffling behind the wainscoting. There was a damp odor of mildew. So you think that it is only God who sees the soul, Basil? He's really doing a lot of uh, build-up before just showing the thing. Uh, draw that curtain back and you will see mine. The voice that spoke was cold and cruel. 
You are mad, Dorian, or playing a part, muttered Hallward, frowning. You won't? Then I must do it myself, said the young man, and he tore the curtain from its rod and flung it on the ground. An exclamation of horror broke from the painter's lips as he saw in the dim light the hideous face on the canvas grating at him. There was something in his expression that filled him with disgust and loathing. Good heavens! It was Dorian Gray's own face that he was looking at. That horror, whatever it was, had not yet entirely spoiled that marvelous beauty. There was still some gold in that thinning hair and some scarlet on the sensual mouth. The sodden eyes had kept something of the loveliness of their blue, and the noble curves had not yet completely passed away from the chiseled nostrils, from the plastic throat. Yes, it was Dorian himself. But who had done it? He seemed to recognize his own brushwork, and the frame was his own design. The idea was monstrous, yet he felt afraid. He seized the lighted candle and held it to the picture. In the left-hand corner was his own name, traced in long letters of bright vermilion. It was some foul parody, some infamous ignoble satire. He had never done that. Still, it was his own picture. He knew it. And he felt as if his blood had changed in a moment from fire to sluggish ice. His own picture? What did it mean? Why had it altered? He turned and looked at Dorian Gray with the eyes of a sick man. His mouth twitched, and his parched tongue seemed unable to articulate. He passed his hand across his forehead. It was dank with clammy sweat. The young man was leaning against the mantel shelf, watching him with that strange expression that one sees on the faces of those who are absorbed in a play. When some great artist is acting, there was neither real sorrow in it nor real joy. There was simply the passion of the spectator, with perhaps a flicker of triumph in his eyes. He had taken the flower out of his coat and was smelling it, or pretending to do so. What does this mean? cried Howard at last. His own voice sounded shrill and curious in his ears. Taking a sip of that coffee. Years ago, when I was a boy, said Dorian Gray, crushing the flower in his hand, you met me, flattered me, and taught me to be vain of my good looks. One day, you introduced me to a friend of yours who explained to me the wonder of youth, and you finished a portrait of me that revealed to me the wonder of beauty. In a mad moment that, uh, even now, I don't know whether I regret it or not, I made a wish. Perhaps you would call it a prayer. Oh, I remember it. Oh, how well I remember it. No, the thing is impossible. The room is damp. Mildew has got on the canvas. The paints I used had some wretched mineral poison in them. I'll tell you, the thing is impossible. Ah, what is impossible, murmured the young man, going over to the window and leaning his forehead against the cold, mist-stained glass. You told me you had destroyed it. Yeah, I was wrong. It has destroyed me. I don't believe it is my picture. Can't you see your ideal in it? Said Dorian bitterly. My ideal, as you call it, as you called it. There's nothing evil in it, nothing shameful. You were to me such an ideal as I shall never meet again. This is the face of a satyr. Oh, it is the face of my soul. Christ, what a thing I must have worshipped. It has the eyes of a devil. Each of us 
"'Has heaven and hell in him, Basil?' cried Dorian with a wild gesture of despair. Halward turned again to the portrait and gazed at it. "'My God! If it is true,' he exclaimed, "'and this is what you have done with your life, "'why, you must be worse than those who talk against you fancy you to be.' He held the light up again at the canvas and examined it. The surface seemed to be quite undisturbed, and uh, as he had left it, it was from within, apparently, that the foulness and horror had come. Through some strange quickening of the inner life, the leprosies of sin were slowly eating away the thing away. The thing away, I can't read. The rotting of a corpse in a watery grave was not so fearful. His hand shook, and a candle fell from his socket on the floor and lay there sputtering. He placed his foot on it and put it out. Then he flung himself into the rickety chair that was standing by the table and buried his face in his hands. Good God, Dorian, what a lesson. What an awful lesson. There is no answer. But he could hear the young man sobbing at the window. Pray, Dorian, pray, he murmured. What is it that one is taught to say in one's boyhood? Lead us not into temptation. Forgive us our sins. Wash away our inequities. Let us say that, together, the prayer of your pride has been answered. The prayer of your repentance will be answered also. I worshipped you too much. I am punished for it. You worshipped yourself too much. We are both punished. Dorian Gray turned slowly around and looked at him with tear-dimmed eyes. It is too late, Basil, he faltered. It's never too late, Dorian. Let us kneel down and try it if we cannot remember a prayer. Isn't there a verse somewhere? Uh, Those sins be scarlet, yet I will make them as white as snow. Those words mean nothing to me now. Oh, hush. Don't say that. Uh, You have done enough evil in your life. My God, don't you see that accursed thing leering at us? Dorian Gray glanced at the picture. Suddenly... An uncontrollable feeling of hatred for Basil Halward came over him, as though it had been suggested to him by the image on the canvas, whispered into his ear by those grinning lips, the mad passions of a haunted animal stirred within him, and he loathed the man who was seated at the table. More than in his whole life had he ever loathed anything. He glanced wildly around. Something glimmered at the top of the painted chest that faced him. His eye fell on it. He knew what it was. It was a knife that he had brought up uh, some days before to cut a piece of cord and had forgotten to take away with him. He moved slowly toward it, passing Hallward as he did so. As soon as he got behind him, he seized it and turned around. Hallward stirred in his chair as if he was going to rise. He rushed at him and dug the knife into the great vein that was behind the ear, crushing the man's head down on the table and stabbing again and again. There was a stifled uh, groan and the horrible sound of someone choking with blood. Three times the outstretched arms shot up convulsively, waving grotesque stiff-fingered hands in the ears. He stabbed him twice more, but the man did not move. Something began to trickle on the floor. He waited for a moment, still pressing the head down. Then he threw the knife on the table and listened. He could hear nothing but the drip, drip, on the threadbare carpet. He opened the door and went out on the landing. The house was absolutely quiet. No one was about. For a few seconds, he stood bending over the balustrade 
and peering down into the black, seething well of darkness. Then he took out the key and returned to the room, locking himself in as he did so. The thing was still seated in the chair, straining over the table with the bowed head, bowed head, and humped back, and long, fantastic arms. Had it not been for the red, jagged tear in the neck and the clotted black pool that was slowly widening on the table, one would have said that the man was simply asleep. How quickly it had all been done. He felt strangely calm, and walking over to the window, opened it and stepped out onto the balcony. The wind had blown the fog away, and the sky was like a monstrous peacock's tail, starred with myriads of golden eyes. He looked down and saw the policeman, going his rounds and flashing the long beam of his lantern on the doors of the silent houses. The crimson spot of a prowling hansom gleamed at the corner and then vanished. A woman, in a fluttering shawl, was creeping slowly by the railings, staggering as she went. Now and then she stopped and peered back. Once she began to sing in a hoarse voice. The policeman strolled over and said something to her. She stumbled away, laughing, and a bitter blast swept across the square. The gas lamps flickered and became blue, and the leafless trees shook their black iron branches to and fro. He shivered and went back, closing the window behind him. Having reached the door, he turned the key and opened it. He did not even glance at the murdered man. He felt that the secret of the whole thing was not to realize the situation. The friend who had painted the fatal portrait to which all his misery had been due had gone out of his life, and that was enough. Then he remembered the lamp. It was a rather curious one of Moorish workmanship, made of dull silver inlaid with arabesques of burnished steel and studded with the coarse turquoises. Perhaps it might be missed by his servant, and questions would be asked. He hesitated for a moment, then he turned back and took it from the table. He could not help seeing the dead thing. How still it was. How horribly white the long hands looked. It was like a dreadful wax image. Having locked the door behind him, he crept quietly downstairs. The woodwork creaked and seemed to cry out as if in pain. He stopped several times and waited. Now, everything was still. It was merely the sound of his own footsteps. When he reached the library, he saw the bag and coat in the corner. They must be hidden away somewhere. He unlocked a secret press that was at the wainscoting, a press in which he kept his own curious disguises, and put them into it. He could easily burn them afterwards. And then he pulled out his watch. It was twenty minutes to two. He sat down and began to think. Every year, every month, almost, men were strangled in England for what he had done. There had been a madness of murder in the air. Some red star had come too close to the earth, and yet what evidence was there against him? Basil Hallward had left the house at eleven. No one had seen him come in again. Most of the servants were at Selby Royal. His valet had gone to bed. Paris! Yes, it was to Paris that Basil had gone, and by the midnight train as he had attended. With his curious, reserved habits, it would be months before any suspicions would be around. Months! Exclamation point. Everything could be destroyed long before then. A sudden thought struck him. 
He put on his fur coat and hat and went out into the hall. There he paused, hearing the slow, heavy tread of the policeman on the pavement outside and seeing the flash of the bull's eye reflected in the window. He waited and held his breath. <coughs> After a few moments, he drew back the latch and slipped out, shutting the door very gently behind him. Then he began to ring the bell. In about five minutes, his valet appeared, half-dressed and looking very drowsy. I am uh, sorry to have waked you up, Francis, he said, stepping in, but I have forgotten my latch key. What time is it? Ten minutes past two, sir, answered the man, looking at the clock and blinking. Ten minutes past two? How horribly late. You must wake me at nine tomorrow. I have some work to do. Uh, all right, sir. Did anyone call this evening? Mr. Howard, sir, he stayed here till 11, and then he went away to catch his train. Oh, I'm sorry I didn't see him. Did he leave any message? No, sir, except that he would write to you from Paris if he did not find you at the club. That will do, Francis, and don't forget to call me at 9 tomorrow. No, sir. The man shambled down the passage in his slippers. Dorian Gray threw his hat and coat upon the table and passed into the library. For a quarter of an hour, he walked up and down the room, biting his lip and thinking. Then he took down the blue book from one of the shelves and began to turn over the leaves. Alan Campbell, 152 Hertford Street, Mayfair. Yes, that was the man he wanted. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Dorian's a murderer. He, uh, takes the guy upstairs, shows him the painting, and then just kills him after crying a little bit. What do we learn from this, uh, scenario? We learn that, uh, don't feel too sorry for yourself, because you might wind up killing a good friend of yours. And also, where did Harry go? And apparently Dorian in the last chapter is like almost 40 years old so he lost touch with Harry at some point during all the dating he's been doing uh, we'll see if Harry comes around again later but uh, the next thing is he pulls out Alan Campbell's card uh, on Mayfair Street uh, I'm wondering uh, is that the, the guy who carried the frame upstairs to begin with roughly 10 years prior uh, we'll find out what intrigue will happen next so be sure to tune in and uh, see what other really dumb stuff Dorian decides to do. Thanks for listening.